Hello and welcome to this episode of Felonious, a podcast where we discuss the realm of true crime. From chilling cold cases to the wild and wacky, we'll explore it all with a perfect blend of seriousness and humour. My name is Emma. And I'm Nazia. To keep up to date with what's coming up, be sure to follow us on Instagram at felonious.pod and visit our website feloniouspod.com. We hope you enjoy this episode, so let's get to it. Right, we're back for part three. The final part of the Charles Sabrage saga. Yes, fine. Well, not finally, because we've got so much to get through in this episode. Yeah, listeners, this is going to be a long one, but you'll enjoy it, I promise. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be quite a ro- If you thought the last episode was a roller coaster, then this part is going to be another roller coaster. It's like we're fast-tracking you through the theme park rides of the life that is Charles Sabraj. Yeah, so hold on. Yes. So let's try and recap what happened. I mean, we only looked at Give or Take a Year in part two. Yeah, right, 1975 to 1976. Yep, and a lot happened in that short space of time. And... Thinking back, it kind of like his crimes really escalated in that time. Yeah, and and quite quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because part one, we looked at his childhood and his early crimes. And it was only near the end that he actually, that we know of, killed someone for the first time, which was Mohammed Habib. And then in part two, he's killed numerous people in less than a year. Yeah, He's cleaning everyone, basically. Yes, and that's what he likes to call it, isn't it? He, yeah. He likes to clean because uh, his crimes are always justified in his eyes. So his victims in part two were André Prunion, Theresa Knowlton, Vitaly Hakim, Stephanie Parry, Cornelia Hemke and Hemke Bintanya, Connie Joe Bronzich and Laurent Carrier. They all died horrible, horrible deaths. And each killing, he he made more of a an example of them because he was told by his Chinese bosses, according to him. Supposedly. Because he wanted to set an example for other people that were currying in drugs to Thailand and then on to Europe. According to him. Yeah. But yeah, it's just very sad because these were all travellers. Well, most of them that we definitely know of, they're just tra- young travellers. And especially Stephanie, because she came back to look for Vitali. Yeah, he lured her there under the pretense that he knew where her boyfriend was. But he he just planned to kill her because... Why not? He didn't want her going to the authorities. Yeah, exactly. And obviously Cornelia and Henk, they were a young couple... They were described as very sensible and they probably did everything you would expect of a sensible couple. You know, they weren't being reckless. They weren't partying. Not that that excuses what Charles did or, you know, not to victim blame, but they were precautious people and even they weren't spared. And all of them were young people. Yeah. Just travelling along the hippie trail just living their young lives and yeah, their lives just, just get taken away. Yeah, literally, they just wanted to experience something new before going back home. If they went back home, no, Teresa didn't want to go back home. She wanted to join a monastery. Yeah, right. She wanted to be with the uh, monks. 
Yeah. Amongst the monks. Amongst the monks. Unfortunately, she didn't make it. So that's a very depressing start. Yeah. Uh, there was some. There was a little bit of a, if you can call it positivity. There were three people that did manage to escape. Dominique, Francois and Yannick. They managed to get out. Thank goodness. Just about. Yeah. Which is crazy because they were, you know, they were working for him. If anything, they knew more about what was going on. So it's a bit, it's very, I'd say, confident of Charles to let them go, thinking that there wouldn't be any repercussions on him. Yeah. Well, he he thought, oh, I, I know people in France, it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. Or he just thought, you know, he 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 probably put enough fear in them that they wouldn't. That, yeah, they wouldn't go and report him. Yeah. But we'll find out what happens in this episode, won't we? Yes. Uh, so we should do a disclaimer before we begin. Yeah. So we've we've still got the Cockney accents, Nazi. They're not going away. No, they're not. I've still got poor French. You've got pretty good French. It's getting better. Yeah. There's going to be some swearing, probably. Yes. And there may be some gruesome details as well. Yep, we're still going to be, unfortunately, discussing things like murder and violence and drugs. Mmm. So, what is going to happen in this episode? Well, in this episode, we will conclude the case of Charles Sprague as a definite. Finally. <laughs> We'll discuss what happens to Nadine Gears. Uh, we will find out how Herman Knippenkip... Knip, oh my God. <laughs> I know I will always struggle with that name. It's a cool name. I like it. But it's just really hard for me to pronounce. Um. We will find out how Herman Knippenberg joined the dots and found out who Alan Gautier really was. We will count the number of people named Jean who Charles came across. and John. Sorry. Yeah, all right, Frenchie. <laughs> you can say Jean. <laughs> I will say Jean. <laughs> and we'll answer how Charles nearly got a meeting with a gibbering rictus, soon to be British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Yeah. You'll understand how this happens. Just bear with us. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm struggling to understand it and I, I know all about it. So this episode will cover the years from 1976 up until now in 2023. So that is a huge time frame, but there there's a lot to get through. So shall we stop dilly-dallying and just get on with it? Well, before that... <laughs> As I was writing this introduction, I was googling words to best describe Boris Johnson. Right. And gibbering rictus was top of the list, along with liar and partygoer. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, that's Bojo and a T down to a T, really. Yeah, yeah. Not um a, something for the UK to be proud of having someone like that, or anyone in the last. 12, 13 years, who's been in... Or century, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. But, yeah. Yeah, let's get on. Let's rewind all the way back. <laughs> yeah. So February 1976, uh, since finding out about who Charles Sprage really was, 
Nadine stayed away from Cannett House. She became terrified of Charles and according to an article in the Mirror, she slept with a, a baseball bat under her bed. And that's completely understandable. I would do the same thing. Yeah. I would maybe wrap some barbed wire around that baseball bat. <laughs> yeah. But that's just me. And obviously for her, completely understandable because her husband was a chef. So he was away in the evenings working and she would have been on her own. Yeah. So a few evenings she would just stay at a friend's house, wouldn't she, until Remy got home. Yeah. Yeah. What a way to live. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. So one of Nadine's friends went to the British Embassy to tell the story of the gem dealer, Alain Gautier, but they said they wanted proof. Nadine gave the embassy an exercise book written in Dutch belonging to Henk Bintanya. The British sent a report to the Thai police, but Nadine heard nothing back from them. Dominique, who was safely back in France, sent a letter to Nadine explaining he had gone to the police in Paris, but they couldn't do anything either. Yannick, one of the French ex-detectives who turned to be Charles' secretary, had promised to go to Interpol, but he had disappeared with rumours he had gone to a monastery. Dominique and Francois, the other French ex-detective, managed to get an interview with a high-ranking official from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Meanwhile, Charles had phoned Nadine the previous week and said he was phoning from Hong Kong. Desperate to get the commission she was owed, Nadine told Charles that her brother was in trouble and that she needed the money, but she didn't have a brother, so she made the whole story up. A few days before, she had read an article about the burned remains of Connie Jo Bronzich and Lauren Coyier in Kathmandu, and she realised that's where Charles must have been and not Hong Kong. Rainer Stein, the German, told Nadine that Charles had been back to Bangkok twice since Christmas, but had stayed at a hotel, but he planned to move back to Cannock House. On the 13th of February, while waiting for a friend at the Indra Regent Hotel, Charles surprised Nadine. He paid her commission and $300 extra for her brother. Nadine thought Charles was paying for her silence. Her friend did not show in the end, and Nadine was forced to get in a car with Charles and Marie. He questioned her about Dominique and Yannick's whereabouts. When they got to Cannet House, Nadine saw Charles hand over Cornelia Hemker's transistor radio over to the maid, and this was the same maid that helped Nadine get into Charles's apartment in order for her to get the diary belonging to Hank Bintanya, and that's the one that she gave to the British Embassy. So... I don't know how this maid was feeling then. I don't know if she realised the enormity of this situation, but... Yeah. Anyway. Charles was concerned Nadine had gone to the Thai police, but he had not heard anything from his girlfriend, Rung, whose father was a policeman. Marie-André was becoming more and more depressed about her relationship with Charles and his affair with Rung. And Marie wrote in her diary... Too quickly, Rung moves into our life. I feel suicidal. I do not feel strong enough to fight with him about her. He is leaving me and gives her everything I would like to have. Happiness, time. And he is very satisfied with her in the bedroom. Okay then. Yeah. To get suspicions off his back, Charles planned to upscale his business and move to another apartment. 
He was sure that the Thai police would overlook him for the murders due to his opulent lifestyle and that he would not appear to be a person to kill hippies to get extra cash. Charles hired Frenchman Jean Dusmay. I... Okay, so... I asked my partner, my French native partner, how to pronounce his surname. And even he didn't have an answer because he said it's, it's, it's not a very common surname. I think it's Dream. I mean, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. So Jean Dream. Okay. Charles hired Frenchman Jean Dream. <laughs> Dream. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. <laughs> he hired this Jean to replace Yannick as his secretary. Jean was desperate for money and agreed to fly back to Paris to return with lots of French tourists for Charles's business. Herman Knippenberg is, well, he appears in the story. <laughs> I'll do that again. <laughs> A 31-year-old Herman Knippenberg a Dutchman working at the Royal Netherlands Embassy. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs asked him to look for a Dutch couple, Henk Pintania and Cornelia Hemke. He was given a letter written by the couple's family and in the letter it described that they were on their way to renew their passports and it mentioned that they had met a French gem dealer. He asked his secretary to check the post office in Chiang Mai where the Dutch couple were staying to see if they had collected their post. Their mail was still waiting for them, and Herman discovered that their passports were not renewed. A colleague from the Belgian embassy, Paul Simmons, asked if Herman was looking for anyone. Herman, at this point, hadn't told anyone he was looking for the Dutch couple. But Simmons told him about Baronet. Baronet. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Simmons told him about. Baronet Gilles de Giverny. A Belgian diplomat. <laughs> and an argument he had with a French Moroccan antiques dealer, Albert Goyer, a.k.a. Charles. He's got so many aliases. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's an expert criminal, isn't he? He's getting all these names from these passports he keeps stealing. Yeah, it's hard to keep up. But he's not very imaginative, though. No, there's a lot of A's. Yeah. Alain, Albert... A lot of AG Alan. initials. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Simmons mentioned he heard rumours about a mixed-race Frenchman luring tourists to his apartment and murdering them. He also said that someone had seen a pile of passports in the Frenchman's apartment and that two of them belonged to a Dutch couple. Simmons then revealed his source for, was a friend of Nadine's who had said that Albert Goyer also goes by Alan Gautier. Herman then remembered an article detailing the murders of an Australian couple and that the female was wearing clothing made in Holland. He told Simmons he was looking for the Dutch couple and thought that they were the wrongly identified Australian couple. Herman spoke to the vice consul at the Australian embassy who said that the Australian couple that had been linked to the two burnt corpses had showed up at the embassy a few days before. The 20th of February 1976... Herman went to the Thai police after being warned by Simmons that Alan Gautier had a girlfriend, Rung, who was the daughter of a high-ranking police officer. Herman met with Major General Suet Sothitate, 
I don't know if that's pronounced right. I I don't know either. That's that that it's not French, so I don't know. <laughs> he was a member of Crime Suppression, an elite task force within the Thai Police. Many of its officers are trained at Scotland Yard in the UK. And Major General Paul Saracen, a chairman of the Central Narcotics Board, they said that they would check the Dutch couple's dental records against who were believed to be the Australian couple in the mortuary. Herman wanted to meet Simmons's source as he received more information about Alan Gautier and his wife, Monique. On the 21st of February, Herman went to the Australian embassy to collect documents they had on the murdered couple. He told the vice consul about Alan Gautier and in return was given the pictures of the couple's burnt bodies. And this is a, a quote from Herman. He did an interview for the New Zealand Herald and he said, I'd seen people dead before, but I had not seen them dead in that manner. To see this and to hear from the Thai medical specialists that these people had died, that when the gasoline went over them and was set alight, they were still breathing. At that moment, I said to myself, it's not enough to send a cable to Holland that these people have died. He also got information about an Australian couple, Russell and Vera Lapfon, who had been drugged and robbed by a French psychiatrist, Jean Belmont, and his wife, Monique. On the 24th of February 1976, Herman checked the Thai Immigration Department records and they showed that Henk and Cornelia had not left Thailand. Herman went to the French embassy to find out who Alain Gautier and Albert Goyer were. He found no info on Alan Gautier, but Albert Goyer had made a bad impression with the consulate staff when he applied for a new passport, as his current one had been stolen in Pattaya. He explained he didn't report the theft as he believed it unnecessary, as he had relations with high-ranking officials of the Thai police and immigration office. I bet he did. Mm-hmm. So as proof of his identity, Goyot had handed in an expired passport. The visa stamps revealed a pattern of travel between Hong Kong, Bangkok, Singapore, India, Nepal and Japan. And Herman was excited by this because Goyot had landed at Don Muang Airport on the 10th of December, one day before Cocky and Henk. On the 3rd of March, Herman went to the mortuary where he met a doctor who showed him that the dental records sent from Amsterdam matched the bodies and were identified as the missing Dutch couple, Henk and Cornelia. And on the 5th of March, Herman took his pages of evidence back to General Suet, who said he would start investigations into Albert Goyer and his girlfriend, Rung, but that the timing was unfortunate due to a lack of staff looking at a series of political murders. Herman would continue his own work on the case. On the 8th of March, Gilles de Giverny went to Herman's office to catch up on the case. De Giverny mentioned he had an appointment with a doctor who treated all the French in Bangkok, and Herman asked him to take a photo of Albert Goyer to see if the doctor knew him. The doctor didn't recognise the name Goyer, but said the person in the picture looked exactly like one of his patients, Alain Gautier, who also had a girlfriend called Monique. Later, Herman, de Giverny and Siemens arranged to go to Cannet House in order to speak to Nadine about what she knew. They all went to Simmons's house along with Nadine and Remy 
where Herman shows them pictures of the Dutch couple and she recognised them. Nadine said that there were still belongings of the Dutch couple in Canet House. Nadine informed them that she gave Cornelia's diary to the British Embassy, which Herman knew nothing about. She told them about the number of passports she saw in Charles's safe. The next day, the 9th of March, Herman went to the British Embassy and got Cornelia's diary, where they said they had made a report about it and sent it to the Thai police eight weeks prior. The British hadn't translated the diary, which is unbelievable. Bit shoddy. Yeah. Herman put a dossier together with all of the evidence from Nadine, along with her pictures of the suspects, and gave it to the police. Nadine also made some drawings of the layout of Canet House and attached these to the pictures, along with a a list of items of interest, such as the belongings of the, the victims. They originally arranged to raid Canet House the next morning on the 10th, but when Herman spoke to the colonel later that evening, they informed him that the raid had been postponed in order to guarantee the safety of the witnesses. On the 11th of March, Marie invited Nadine to go shopping with her and she told Nadine that she was going to go to Paris with Charles on a business trip and from there she would go to Canada. Nadine, at this point, she was still unsure about how much Marie knew about Charles. After hearing this, Nadine went straight to Herman and told him about Charles and Marie's uh, travel plans. Herman then called General Suet at the crime suppression, but he was busy. So he then phoned General Powell at the Central Narcotics Board, who said they would raid that evening. Siemens went to Nadine's apartment to take pictures of the raid. When the police entered, they asked Charles where Alain Gauthier was, and Charles said that he was in Hong Kong. He pretended to be David Allen Gore and showed them a US passport which Charles had stolen from an American school teacher six weeks prior. Police searched the apartment and they found Marie's Canadian passport and one belonging to Eric Damer with her photograph inside. Charles tried to explain it away and said how they looked similar but the pictures were of two different women. The police also found Vitaly Hakim's passport. They took the safe to the headquarters. Charles, Marie and AJ were then taken to the crime suppression headquarters but were released the next morning, ordered by General Suet because of no incriminating evidence. If you can believe it. Yes, you can get how frustrating this is. Their passports were confiscated, but Herman was furious, understandably, as Charles was able to convince the police that he was David Allen Gore. They waited for the safe to be opened at headquarters, but Herman knew it would be empty. Nothing was in in the safe but a number of suspicious drugs that were taken from the apartment to be analysed. Herman called to the US Embassy and asked Ralph Nider to look into the David Allen Gore passport. Ralph asked Herman if he had heard about Theresa Knowlton and whether there could be a connection between her and Alain Gauthier. Herman remembered seeing a picture of a woman with a bikini lying on the sand at the crime suppression headquarters and said he would ask his informants if Knowlton had ever visited Canet House. The Thai police had been informed by American officials to hold Mr Gore, aka Charles, in custody while they looked into his passport. In the evening, de Givernay phoned Herman to inform him that he was in a bar with a man who had purchased $3,000 worth of diamonds from Gautier and was then drugged and robbed. 
Herman instructed De Givenet to tell the man to go to the crime suppression headquarters in the morning in order to destroy the Alan Gore alias. On the 12th of March, Herman went to the crime suppression headquarters and spoke to Colonel Witten, who told him the suspects were still being interrogated and the Thai police had been instructed by the Americans to hold Mr. Gore. De Givenet phoned again to say the French embassy had mentioned a missing person request to trace Stephanie Parry. Nadine called Herman to say there was a light on in Charles's apartment and found out through phoning the apartment that AJ was there. AJ requested to see her and Herman told her to go and act as normal, which I can imagine would have been so frightening for her. Yeah, but he kind of regretted telling her that. Because it's putting her in danger. I would have been shitting my pants if I were in her position. Yeah, I'd be doing more than that. Jesus. Yeah. Try and find a way to hide that baseball bat in my on my person's going there. <laughs> just hold it behind my back. Just turn your trouser leg. <laughs> yeah. Oh god, I could think of so many bat wrong jokes with that. Anyway, <laughs> uh, sorry. Moving on. Nadine went to Charles's apartment and pretended to be surprised by the mess left by the raid and to know nothing about it. AJ told Nadine that the raid was due to a customer who Charles sold diamonds to and later stole them back again. They learned later that day that Charles and Marie had been released from the crime suppression headquarters and had left AJ behind to sort out the details. Charles had probably bribed the police to release them, which wouldn't be surprising, to be honest. Yeah, he's done it before. Yeah. He later picked up a bag of passports from one of his ex-Thai girlfriends and got in a car with Tommy, who was a Thai gem dealer. Marie and Jean Duim also joined them and they all headed for the Malaysian border. Meanwhile, after waiting for Charles to show up at her house, Rung went to Canet House, where AJ told her about the raid. Over the next few days, AJ moved out of Canet House into a hotel and took equipment with him that he could sell and was interviewed by Bob Jacobs from the US Embassy. He denied having any knowledge about Theresa Knowlton. I'm sorry, uh, going back to Rung, mm. why didn't she do anything when she was told about the raid? She must have known who Charles was, right? Unless he convinced her somehow that the accusations of murder were false. You know how he likes to spin his stories. Mm. You know, maybe he he told her his version and she's so besotted by him. She believed it. And because she wasn't, I don't think she was at Canet House a lot. So she didn't really know what was going on. I wonder what her dad knew then. Yeah. And whether he was corrupt or... Yeah, it's true. Especially like since Charles flashed wealth and, you know, looked like he had a sort of promising future if he was planning on opening up jewellery shops. Yeah. But who knows? So both AJ and Rung then flew to Penang to meet Charles. In the meantime... Charles had drugged and robbed some Australian tourists and got questioned by the Malaysian police for cashing in stolen travellers' checks. But Charles being Charles, he managed to talk himself out of it. A few days later, AJ and Rung flew back to Bangkok, while Charles, Marie and Tommy flew to Karachi to meet Mary Ellen Ether, who was the Australian nurse who helped Charles escape from the Greek prison. She was the one who smuggled in the angle wire and petrol. So after a few days with her, Charles and Tommy flew back to Europe and left Marie with Mary. Marie, 
she wasn't able to explain why she couldn't use this time to escape Charles. Yeah, it would it would have been the perfect opportunity. Yeah. Unless he had instructed Mary to do something if she tried. Yeah, and I guess Marie, even if it wasn't Mary, like she probably thought, who has he got watching her while he's away? Yeah. She's so trapped and probably paranoid as well. Ten days later, Marie flew to meet Charles in Europe. During this time, Hermann Knippingberg was following up leads and documenting AJ's every move. He was instructed by his ambassador to take some holiday as he was becoming obsessed with the case of Alain Gutier. Before he left, he delivered his in-depth report to all the embassies involved. On the 6th of April, Nadine received a postcard from Charles in Switzerland. She showed this to Paul Simmons, who contacted a colleague at Interpol in order to get Charles arrested. A few days after this, Nadine was called to the French embassy as the news of Stephanie Parry's murder had finally got through to them. One of the officials accused her of being part of Charles's gang. She asked the official if he had read Hermann Knippenberg's report, to which he replied, this is so infuriating, to which he replied that it was in the waste paper basket and refused to take the report seriously due to Stephanie Parry's name being misspelled as Paris. Uh, yeah. <sighs> anyway. And we wonder why the embassies didn't communicate with each other. Yeah. So, on the 12th of April, a report from a Reuters correspondent suggested that the murders of the couple Cornelia Hempke and Hempke-Bintania were related to the killings of Connie Bronzich and Laurent Carrier, and that they were all a part of a drug trafficking ring. On the 13th of April, six months after her murder, Theresa Knowlton's family were notified of her murder. Six months. That must have been such a long wait to find out about your, your loved one. Yeah, especially for her grandmother, who was trying everything that she could in her power to find out where her granddaughter was yeah she must have been thinking oh maybe she's at the monastery and and she's not allowed to contact but in the back of her mind she must have been thinking oh something horrible has happened i mean i guess some sometimes you can kind of get a gut feeling can't you yeah and it's that not knowing which is just must have been so horrible mm. So when Herman returned from holiday a few weeks later, Nadine phoned him to tell him that the owner of Canet House planned to sell the items in Charles's apartment to pay for the unpaid rent. But these items would have been considered as evidence. So on the 27th of April, Herman, Nadine and other diplomats went to the apartment to gather all the items. The US Embassy contacted to say that they suspected Alan Gautier was involved in narcotics. So Herman and the others looked through the apartment to find clues leading Gautier to the heroin trade. They found a book about Buddhist meditation belonging to Teresa Knowlton. This was the first hard piece of evidence linking Teresa to Alain Gautier. They also found letters penned by Marie Leclerc detailing her love for Charles, a travel itinerary belonging to André Brugnot, who Charles had killed in Chiang Mai. Charles, Marie and Tommy were staying at the home of Jean Duim in Paris. Paris. I was about to say Paris. <laughs> God. See, you are French. I'm going to start speaking Franglish or Franglish in a minute. 
While they were there, Charles found out that Chantal Compagnon, his ex-wife, was also in Paris. So he went to her parents' house and waited outside until everyone had gone. He knocked on the door and when Chantal opened it, she was shocked to see him, obviously. He asked about their daughter, Madhu, and gave 500 French franc notes to Chantal and then left. Chantal knew that he was on the run again. Charles then went to see Félix Desconge, who was the friend that he got to know in Poissy Jail, with Marie. They had not seen each other for years, but Félix hoped Charles had changed his ways. Charles offered Félix a bag of gems, wanting to show how successful he had become. Félix very sensibly refused, as he knew the police wouldn't be far behind. Charles spent most of his time at Felix's apartment making phone calls and arranging business deals. On the 6th of May, an article in the newspaper Tyrath had mentioned that Gautier was caught in Singapore, but the source was unclear and there was no byline. It also mentioned that Gautier was linked to drug rings in Hong Kong. The next day in Hong Kong, a follow-up story appeared. Police in Singapore said they knew nothing of the arrest of Gautier. The editor of the Bangkok Post called Herman and decided that a barrage of front-page headlines would encourage the Thai police to issue an international arrest warrant. On the 7th of May, an article, Web of Death, was published with pictures of the five known murder victims, along with ones of Charles and Marie in the Bangkok Post. A couple of weeks later, Bangkok Interpol released an international arrest warrant for Charles, Marie and AJ. Is this the one that Marie sees? And she starts freaking out. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and then Charles, being Charles, tried to... Placate it. Just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Unaware of their arrest warrant, Charles and Marie visited a high-ranking police officer and his wife in Paris. They had met the couple in Singapore and they were impressed with Charles's reputation in the gem industry. The couple ordered thousands of dollars worth of jewellery from Charles and he happily accepted a healthy deposit and monthly payments. However, when the police officer opened his door, Charles could tell that something was wrong. The police officer showed Charles the Web of Death article, which he quickly dismissed as slander. He claimed that he had made enemies in Bangkok because of the low prices he was charging for his gems, and that they were trying to ruin his reputation by planting false evidence and telling the press false stories. The police officer said that he had phoned Interpol and Alain Gauthier was not on their files, and that's because... They hadn't filed the paperwork that they had received on Gautier by that point. Of course not. I mean, why, why would you file paperwork? I know. Charles managed to talk to the police officer into believing his lies and gave him a further $1,000 deposit on a necklace of sapphires. The officer also gave him a diamond-cut family heirloom to get recut in a contemporary style to add to its value. What does Charles do with that? Uh, what, what does he do? What does he do? He pawns the family heirloom. Oh, shit. For 10,000 francs and then went to visit his mother, Noy, in Marseille. My head is literally being smacked by my hand right now in, like, how can this guy be so stupid? Why would you hand over that much to a person that you suspect has done something? Even if he's talked you round, how can you trust that person 100% after that. My theory is, 
his gut my- microbiome's off balance because he obviously hasn't got any gut feelings telling him, don't do this. But he, he needs to eat some yogurt. Yes, get some prebiotics in you. That's it. Or he just wasn't listening to his gut. Who knows? But anyway, more fool him. So Noy and Charles, they fought from the moment they saw each other again. And she accused him of deserting his brother Guy, who was still in a Greek jail after Charles helped him get into prison by trying to follow his lead and then offering to... I mean, they they did discover their identities, but he offered to switch identities under the pretense that he was doing his brother a favour. Oh, brotherly love. But, I mean, Noi obviously forgot about that because then she accompanied her son on a gambling spree where Charles lost a huge amount of money. They're so bad at gambling. Why do they keep doing it? I know, I know. Anyway. Meanwhile, Stephanie Parry's father had received a dossier on Alain Gautier, which he passed on to the French police. The dossier included the name and address of Jean Duim, where Charles and Marie were staying. On the 12th of May, the report which Hermann Knippenberg had compiled reached investigators in Quebec, who went to question Marie Leclerc's family. Marie's family passed on Charles's mother's address in France, which they had in case they needed to contact Marie in an emergency. The headlines in the Bangkok Post and the inquiries from Paris Interpol about Stephanie Parry had gained the interest of Colonel Sompol, the head of the Bangkok Interpol, who then took statements from Herman, Nadine and Remy, and evidence was handed over. He also interviewed survivors, including Eric Damour, the Frenchman who was drugged and left in the van in India. He issued an international arrest warrant for Charles, Marie and AJ. On the 19th of May, Laurent Corrier's brother flew to Kathmandu to identify his child remains. Theresa Knowlton's grandmother wrote a letter to the US Embassy in Bangkok asking for more information about Theresa's death. Paris Interval cabled Bangkok with information about who the man posing as Alain Gautier really was. June 1976, on their way to India from Paris, Charles and Marie spotted an article in Asia Week detailing the murders alongside their pictures. He downplayed the seriousness of the article by saying to Marie that it was just journalists looking for a story, but Marie knew there was a warrant out for their arrest. Charles was planning to go to South America where the police and the press were less inquisitive. He was becoming concerned about Marie and knew that she was trying to get away from him. He no longer trusted her and planned to do something about it. In Bombay, Charles went back to his old hunting ground, Dipti's house of pure drinks, where they're not so pure with Charles around. Mm-hmm. Where he met Jean Huggins... Huggins... Oh, God. Go on, Nazi, use your French. Use your French powers. Hugen? Hugen? I forgot I forgot to ask my partner about this. But it's another Jean. Oh, Jean. Jean was looking for work as a film extra and was desperate for money. Charles introduced himself as Daniel and said that he needed passports and a girl to help him carry gems across the borders. Charles met a Frenchman called Luc Solomon. He took Luke for dinner and promised him a night with Barbara Smith, the girl Jean had introduced him to. Charles drugged Luke and took him back to his hotel room. He robbed him and left him there for the maids to find him the next day. 
Luke was taken to hospital but subsequently died on the 2nd of July 1976. Jean was now petrified of Charles. Charles instructed him to team up with Mary Ellen Ether, who helped Charles in Greece, the Australian nurse, to pretend to be a foreign diplomat with his wife shopping in the jewellery shops in Delhi in order to appraise the stock. Jean was told by Charles to take note of travellers who could be lured, drugged and robbed. Jean was waiting for an opportunity to escape. All the stolen cheques, passports and valuables were in Marie's attaché case, which Jean was looking after while Marie found her parents in Canada. Marie wanted her parents to send a lawyer to Delhi to help her escape from Charles and their situation. When she returned to where Jean was, he had disappeared along with the attaché case. Charles, Marie, Barbara and Mary went to Agra and met a group of Dutch travellers who he planned to rob. His situation had become dire since Jean ran off with all of their passports and money. Charles needed a batch of new passports to get to South America. Charles and Marie heard a group of 60 French tourists outside their hotel room and thought, Ka-ching! Charles decided to forget about the Dutch and focus on the French travellers as French passports were much easier to loosen. Marie had had enough and she tried to escape the hotel room, but Charles grabbed her and slapped her. He later said he was close to killing Marie-André, or cleaning as he termed it, but according to the Neville and Clark book, for sentimental reasons, he spared her. Oh, how kind. Marie had seen all the articles about them and she was becoming more and more anxious about her situation and Charles tried to calm her down by promising that they'll soon be leaving for South America and that he had a master plan to get them more money. And he said that if anything were to happen in the meantime, she could tell the police that she was forced into staying with him and that she didn't know anything as he kept everything secret. Later that afternoon... Charles got to know the tour operator in charge of the French tourists and entertained him with stories about India. Over the next days, he made himself popular among the French tourists and his knowledge of gems and precious stones fascinated them. He told them about the dangers of Indian tap water and secretly spiked some of their drinks with laxatives so that the tourists would blame the Indians and feel safe with Charles. He wanted only a few to be sick so that the others would think their good health was due to Charles's medicines. What a sneaky bastard. Oh no. Unbeknownst to Charles, Jean Hugines had written to the Canadian embassy. He enclosed pictures of Charles, who obviously he knew as Daniel. Deputy Superintendent Tully at New Delhi's crime branch had been in contact with Interpol, and there was news Charles had re-entered India. Tully remembered the Ashoka Hotel robbery, and Charles's escape from jail. Tully was determined to arrest Charles and to not let him escape. Tully arranged to meet with Jean, who told him about Daniel. Convinced it was Charles Sabrage, Tully passed around mugshots to his officers. Meanwhile, the fights between Charles and Marie had escalated, and she was covered in bruises. From Agra, they travelled to Delhi, where they caught up with the 60 French tourists who had left a few days before to go to Jaipur. He learned the group had plans to travel to Bangkok and warned them that after their first meal in Jaipur, they could be subject to stomach problems. They asked him for more of his medicine, but he had run out. He conveniently knew a doctor who could supply them and took Jean with him. 
They met the group in the Vikram Hotel restaurant and gave them the medicine with instructions to take one straight away and two after dinner. Some of them took the medicine immediately and the others left it on the table. He encouraged to heed his instructions so that they could be sleepy enough later for him to rob. Suddenly, the tour operator's wife groaned and collapsed. Charles blamed it on the vodka the group was drinking. The tour operator thought his wife was having a stroke and then mentioned it could have been the medicine to which Charles said they were harmless. Some of the travellers started to feel symptoms and Charles blamed it on the quinine some had taken against malaria. Soon more and more were feeling dizzy and collapsing and more were accusing Charles. He realised he had misjudged the dose of laxatives and sleeping pills even though he tested them on Barbara beforehand. The wife of the tour operator was still unconscious along with 20 others of the group. Some of the other travellers were phoning the French embassy but they couldn't get through. Charles told Jean Dismay to wait outside in the car. Charles wouldn't leave without taking the bag belonging to the tour operator which probably held the 60 passports he needed. The travellers who didn't take the capsules surrounded Charles when police arrived. Charles explained that he got the capsules from a doctor in Connaught Circus and convinced the police to follow him to see this doctor. But the travellers that surrounded him had just heard from the embassy and were instructed to not let Charles leave at all. Superintendent Tully arrived at the hotel. He went up to Charles and lifted up his shirt to look for the appendectomy scar which he had got from escaping prison in Delhi. He identified the man posing as Daniel to be Charles Sabrage and arrested him. Hooray! What a literal shit show. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine the scene? He's got however many people passing out and pooing themselves and that's his downfall. That's what gets him arrested. (laughs) What a scene. That's some party, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. While in custody, Marie Leclerc wrote a statement to say that Charles and AJ committed the murders and that she had not seen or heard from AJ since March, so it was possible Charles killed him too. Felix saw headlines in French newspapers about the arrest of Charles and Marie. Charles later wrote a letter to Felix from Tihar jail to say he had nothing to do with the killings. At some point in 1976, according to the Hawk and Hyena book by Farouk Dondi, it is thought that Charles murdered a Jewish man in central India whom he had sold diamonds to. He killed the man and then retrieved his diamonds back. He was arrested for this murder but then released on insufficient evidence. According to Charles, he seduced a female Harvard University forensic scientist who volunteered her knowledge and assistance to have him acquitted. After explaining that the fellow was a junkie who died of an overdose of heroin and there was no proof as to who had injected him with it, he added, this fellow deserved to die. It's not the first time he says that. So, on the 5th of July in 1977... The trial of Charles Sabrage starts a year after his arrest and it had garnered worldwide attention. News agencies from across the globe were gathered in the courtroom. Marie Leclerc was beside Charles. She had been on a hunger strike in protest of the conditions she was experiencing in prison. Jean Dume, 
was also being prosecuted and he was chained to a police officer. Rumours had spread about Charles, such as that he had jewels hidden in his teeth, he was a karate expert, and he had a cachet of guns in his cell. Charles enjoyed these rumours, of course, and hinted at the numerous bank accounts he had under false names. Mary Ellen Ether and Barbara Smith had turned witnesses for the prosecution and were not allowed any contact with Charles. However, he was still able to send them letters inside prison to each of his gang members. A few weeks before the trial, both Mary and Barbara were discovered unconscious in their cells. A false beard and moustache, along with 20,000 rupees, were found in Charles's cell. I wonder if they were connected. Anyway. Nah, not Charles. At the back of the courtroom, Richard Neville and Julia Clark were there. And from their book, they write, It was like meeting a movie star. He gave the impression of being a person of substance and oddly respectability. They kind of, in a way, hype him up because they they mention a few times in their book how handsome he is and kind of not admire him. But they say, they describe him in... Obviously, they talk about the murders and all the horrific stuff, but they say how he's so handsome and he gives this sense of respectability. And then when you read Hawk and Hyena, Farouk Dondi's like, no, he wasn't nothing like that when I met him. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think they're trying to get across his charisma and his ability to fool people into doing what he wanted or into believing his stories. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Farouk Dondi is just like, oh yeah, he's a motherfucker. <laughs> but I wonder if that's also because Julia Clark and Richard Neville, they're looking at Charles as this exotic, foreign, like half Indian, half Vietnamese. Whereas Farouk Dondi's like, he's just another Indian. Like Farouk Dondi's Indian. So it's like, doesn't it doesn't have that. I don't know. Do you, do you get what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't say anything about that because I'm white, so... <laughs> No, I'll say it for you. No, I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) So Mary Ellen Ether, she then retracted her statement and claimed that she didn't see Charles drug Luke Solomon and that the police were blackmailing her to say Charles was guilty. However, Charles received a two-year sentence for the drugging of the 60 French tourists. Richard Neville interviewed Charles in his cell the next day And that's when Charles began giving him his autobiography. On why he wanted to release his autobiography, Charles said, In some ways, my whole life has been a protest against the French legal system, which stole so many years of my youth. All I ever wanted was to win them back. All this time, he moans and moans about the French Mm. and about France. And yet he keeps going back there. Yeah, Yeah, he does keep going back there. So he can't hate it that much. Yeah, and I'm sorry, but you've just robbed however many people of their lives, which they're definitely never going to get back because they're dead. Don't blame the French legal system for that. In addition to what Charles says, he also said, as long as I can talk to people, I can manipulate them. There's no surprise there. Yeah, he's a funny one. Anyway... So for for their book, Julia Clark was researching the victim's stories and interviewing their families and talking with the police. 
And weirdly enough, she could see similarities between her husband, Richard, and Charles. She writes, It was, above all, Charles's voice, in turn intimate, manipulative, persuasive, and playful, that held so much power over everyone who engaged with him. Richard, too, was so charming that I had seen new acquaintances become completely enthralled by him. These two men were opposites in background and moral character, and yet so well matched. I think I remember reading that uh, Richard Neville actually served time in prison as well because of an article he had written in a magazine in Australia. Yes, I remember this. Yeah. Wasn't it quite out there? Not out there, but it was like anti-establishment, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there wasn't any freedom of speech pattern, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But I mean, he wasn't jailed for drugging and killing people, that's for sure. No, but he did smoke weed, apparently. Yes. But so did so did a lot of people in the 70s. Yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. So both Neville and Clark flew to Bangkok and the other murder sites where they assessed police files and Herman Knippenberg's report, who was by this point based in New York. When they returned to Delhi, Charles was ready to talk about the details of the murders. The authors spent a year working on the case and travelling between Asia and Europe, interviewing Nadine and Remy Giers, Charles's neighbours, Dominique Renelot and Herman and Angela Knippenberg in New York. Charles had told him that his first victim was an unnamed American who he buried in Pattaya, but his body was never found. Charles had even drawn Richard a crude map, which he gave to the authorities, but whether anyone bothered to look, like nobody was found. Awaiting the verdicts in Tihar jail for the poisoning of the French tourists and that of Luke Solomon, Charles had his shackles removed after he had petitioned to the High Court. He recorded the prison guards with a tape recorder strapped to his leg while they were telling him about their illegal activities such as petty theft, supplying opium, etc. He then went to the superintendent in the jail with the tapes to seek a deal. Charles had a colour television in his cell and a portable typewriter. A guard later said that Charles had conjugal visits with Marie Leclerc in the superintendent's office. In October 1981, the news of Charles's opulent prison lifestyle had reached the outraged Indian press. To stop his privileges from being taken away, Charles sent the tapes that he had made of the guards' illegal deeds to the High Court. The superintendent lost his job and the jail was reorganised, but nothing changed for Charles. In 1983, Marie Leclerc was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and in July the court ruled that she could die in her own country of Canada. She died in April 1984 at the age of 38. Charles had received many letters and marriage proposals from women. He even received contact from a UCLA psychology graduate who wanted to understand Charles more, and in doing so, she fell in love with him. She tried to arrange a Protestant-like marriage ceremony in Varanasi when he was on trial for killing Alan Jacobs, but she was forced to, <laughs> she was forced to leave India, and apparently she was kicking and screaming when she got on the flight home. Jesus. 
Yeah. And there was another lady, a lawyer, who visited Charles over 60 times and gave him food items and even imported a wardrobe of shorts and jeans for him. I mean, because when you're in prison, you need a a, a lush uh, wardrobe of clothes. Right. You need your Levi's. If they had Le- Did they have Levi's back then? Yeah. We should know this. We worked in a jeans shop. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Yeah. This is previous life. 501s. Yes. Um, anyway, <laughs> as well as having a female fan base, he also made friends with gangsters inside Tihar Jail, and some continued to work for him even after they were released. For murdering Alan Jacobs, the Israeli crane driver in Varanasi, Charles and Marie received a life sentence. However, the conviction was overturned in 1983. They were also exonerated for the death of Luke Solomon, the Frenchman who died in hospital after being drugged. In the case of the three Frenchmen drugged and left in a van, one of them, Eric Damour, produced a picture of himself and Charles walking along the beach. However, it could not be entered as evidence because he didn't have a negative of the photo. Therefore, Charles was never charged for this case. In 1985, Neville and Clark had returned to Australia, but were still receiving phone calls from Charles. The Thai police were pressing for the extradition of Charles for the drugging of Russell and Vera Lapthorne, the Australian couple, and the murder of the Dutch couple Cornelia Hemker and Henk Bintania. In December, the High Court allowed his extradition to Thailand. Charles didn't want this because he knew he would be shot in Thailand due to the poor human rights conditions in the prisons there. When Neville and Clark's book was published, Charles told the press that it was 90% true. Now that he faced the possibility of being extradited to Thailand, he distanced himself from the book and the murders. The authors never took his confessions word for word, but as a guide for their own investigations. I'll be free soon, he wrote to Richard in April 1985. Wherever I'll be, I'll contact you. Keep reading the news. I would be so freaked out if I had received that letter. Yeah. I know, right? And, you know, these guys, they must be thinking, we just want to write the book. Just leave us alone after that. Oh, they must have had so many regrets. Yeah. In March 1986, Charles managed to escape from prison again. Surprise, surprise, surprise. (laughs) He had some of his accomplices come to the jail with cake and sweets to celebrate Charles's birthday. His birthday's in April, anyway. Yeah, he likes to get in there early. Yeah. He offered them to the guards, who later collapsed as the cake was laced with drugs. He tied the guards up, but spared one as a decoy. He got into the car which his accomplices had driven to the jail and placed the decoy guard in the front seat. As the guard's arm was hanging out of the window, they were not stopped at the security gate and were let through. Because they could see the um, security badges on... The uniform. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, God. Anyway... (laughs) The, the decoy guard was then dumped once they left the prison grounds and he was found 15 minutes later. In April 1986, when it was actually Charles's birthday, by the way, that month, um, <laughs> police in Delhi received tips that Charles was in Goa. 
On the 6th of April, Charles went to the Coconut Tree restaurant to make calls to Beirut and Paris. There were undercover police officers there at the same time. Inspector Madhuka Zende arrested Charles 14 years ago. The inspector instantly recognised Charles, and on his 42nd birthday, Charles was arrested. And apparently the restaurant still has a statue of him commemorating this event. Yeah, you can see the picture on Wikipedia. <laughs> it looks like, you know, do you remember the Lurpak adverts? Yeah. With the guy oh modelled out of the Lurpak margarine. Yes. It looks like that. <laughs> nice. <gasps> Most accounts of Charles's escape from Tahar Jail say what we have just described. However... When Farouk Dondi, the author of The Hawk and Hyena, spoke with Charles, it seemed only some of the guards were drugged and the rest were bribed, which makes more sense. And when Charles arrived in Goa, no one recognised him or questioned him. So he called a police officer friend who he had worked with before in Mumbai and told him to take leave in Goa. And they plotted for him to pose as a dining guest to recognise Charles and arrest him. When Dondi asked why Charles went through with this plot, he explained that his prison sentence in India was due to expire in a year and India had the extradition treaty with Thailand. If Charles was going to be sent back to Thailand for the conviction of murder, then he would have been executed by firing squad. According to Thai law, after 20 years, the murder charges would expire under the statute of limitations. Charles needed just another nine years for this and India could not extradite him until he had served any sentences for crimes committed in the country. So he got the nine years that he wanted by escaping from Tihar. He's so cunning. Yeah. They, they should have called him the fox and not the, the serpent. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess serpent makes sense because he keeps slipping himself his way out of these situations. He's a slippery little devil. Yeah. What's a, how would you say a fox and a snake in the same word? A eh? Snake. <laughs> Socks. Snake. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I've had two Oreos. I'm on a sugar high. <laughs> oh my God. Watch out, people. Yeah. Or maybe I'm on a sugar crash. I can't tell. So while he was serving his sentence into Har Jail... In 1994, a Pakistani terrorist called Masood Azhar was arrested. When he was brought into the prison, he was severely beaten by patriotic Indian convicts, including thieves, rapists and murderers. The guards did nothing to stop the beatings because they were, and this is a quote from the book, uh, Hawk and Hyena, they were equally endowed with Indian patriotism. Charles intervened and announced that anyone who assaulted Masood would be answerable to him. He used his leverage in the prison to protect Masood and gave him medical care. Over time, Charles gained his trust so they could become acquainted. One day they were watching the news about Indian special forces raiding terrorists in Kashmir. Charles noticed Masood becoming disturbed as he recognised some of the individuals that had been captured. Charles offered him his mobile phone to call his contacts and check on them. Masood made several phone calls and returned the phone to Charles after the battery died, 
and informed him that the calls were disastrous. Many of the people he knew were likely targeted and killed in the raids. Charles expressed his sympathy. In the early hours of the next day, Charles shouted for the guards. He had cut himself and told them he suffered from hemophilia. As there was no prison doctor, he demanded to be taken to hospital. Once Charles was admitted to the hospital, the staff discovered there was no evidence of hemophilia and the self-induced bleeding had stopped. When questioned by the junior doctor while Charles was at the hospital, he said, Because I told the prison guards to, and demanded to see Rajiv Gandhi, the Prime Minister, as a matter of extreme urgency and national security. In the Hawk and Hyena, it said that Rajiv Gandhi is the Prime Minister at the time. However, when you looked into this, he was actually assassinated in 1991. Yes. So if we're going by actual... Fact. Actual fact, yeah. Um, in 1994, the Prime Minister would have been Narasimha Rao. Yeah, P.V. Narasimha Rao. He served between 91 and 1996. But I don't know if it means that Charles demanded to see Rajiv Gandhi, not knowing that he'd had been assassinated? Possibly, but then if he had access to the television and the news, he would have known. Yeah, he would have been informed, so there's no excuse. There's an error in this book. Yeah, we don't know what's happened, but there's an error. The hospital admin called the Prime Minister's office after Charles said he had information about terrorism and that if they didn't act on his instructions, it would be disastrous. Two men were sent who introduced themselves as members of the RAW, which was the Research and Analysis Wing, and that's the Indian equivalent to MI6 or CIA. Charles told the raw operatives that he possessed phone numbers of terrorist contacts, which he obtained through Masood. He was then moved to a safe house. However, he refused to provide the numbers until the Indian government guaranteed he would not be extradited to Thailand, where he faced execution. He insisted that the failure of the talks on extradition be publicly disclosed before he shared the information. What I don't understand is if he already had his nine years to get the statute of limitations... Why did he need this conversation? Unless he was worried that they would cut his sentence short for whatever reason. Unless he was worried that, that India would do a deal with Thailand. Maybe. I guess he's just trying to cover all bases. Yeah. Being who he is. So while he was in the safe house, Sabraj was interrogated multiple times, but he refused to cooperate until he received confirmation of his demand. He agreed to provide one phone number as proof of the valuable information he possessed. Raw followed the lead and discovered connections to the individuals of interest. Meanwhile, other members of the Raw searched Sabraj's cell into Harjel and found a list of phone numbers stitched into his mattress. Charles was then returned to his cell where the raw officer assured him that the foreign office guaranteed he would serve his sentence in Tihar and would not be extradited to Thailand. Meanwhile, Masood remained unaware of Spraj's betrayal and continued to consider him a friend and ally. They even carried on being friends after Charles was released from prison. On the 17th of February 1997, Charles was released from Tihar jail. The arrest warrants for the murder of Teresa Knowlton, Vitaly Hakim, Stephanie Parry, Cornelia Hemke and Henk Bintanya had lapsed due to the 20-year statute of limitations in Thailand. 
he would never be put to trial for these murders. He appeared in many documentaries, nearly had a Hollywood film made about him, and mentioned in letters to Richard Neville that he had dealings with the Taliban. He was arrested again, and the Indian police attempted to charge him with murders they believed he committed before being jailed in Tahar, but he had a fortunate turn of circumstance again. A group of French students had been arrested, believed to be Pakistani spies, when they had photographed nuclear installations and plants. The French ambassador argued their case with the Indian Home Minister, who believed they were foolish tourists and not Pakistani spies. The Indian government made a deal where the French students would be released if France would accept Charles as well, since he was deemed a nuisance. Charles's daughter, Madhu, who is called Usha, discovered Charles Sabraj was her father after she caught Chantel watching a CNN interview after his release. At this time, Chantel had two daughters, her second with Leon Harris, who she met in Kabul. He had also adopted Madhu, or Usha. Despite starting a new life in the USA, Chantel followed Charles in the news. As far as she was concerned, Charles only killed one man, Mohammed Habib, the Pakistani driver. She blames Marie Leclerc and AJ for the other murders and their thefts. Chantal left Leon and her daughters in America to go back to Charles. Charles had a girlfriend at this point, King Ling, or Roseanne, who was pregnant. Chantal told Fruk Dondi her account of the death of Mohammed Habib. According to her, she was with Charles and they were travelling to Afghanistan. They heard Mohammed, who drove them to the Afghan border. He didn't want to go any further and wanted to return to his family. Charles agreed to turn back and stopped for a cup of tea. He spiked the driver's drink and put him in the boot of his car. When they got to a lone spot, Charles opened the boot and discovered he was dead. He asked Chantel to help him dump and destroy the body. They poured petrol on it and burnt it. The body was never discovered and he was recorded as a missing person. It was after this they were both arrested in Afghanistan for small offences. Charles bribed his way out of prison and was smuggled into Pakistan by tourists. When Chantal arrived in Paris, Charles lodged her in cheap hotels, splitting his time between her and his Chinese family. Even though Chantal did not know about his new family, Chantal agreed she would divorce Leon and they would remarry. She's so stupid. What spell he has her under, I don't know, he, he obviously managed to manipulate her so much after all these years. But it's like she's addicted to him. She can't give him up because she follows his every move. Like she she's watching documentaries about him, following the news about him. Could you imagine all the other kids he's had finding out that that's their dad? Oh God, how embarrassing. You found an article with... Usha, we'll call her. She's doing really well for herself now. Yeah, so well. In fact, she's working for... Is it the CIA she's working for? Something like that. Yeah, she's doing something good in America, working for the US authorities. Yeah. Yeah, good on her. Yeah, and she, she has nothing to do with Charles or her mother, thank goodness. In 1998, on one occasion, Farouk had to visit Paris for a film he was working on. Charles and Chantel visited him before Charles excused himself for half an hour leaving Chantel with Farouk. He didn't return and wouldn't answer his phone calls, which meant Chantel had to spend the night with Farouk. During this time, 
She told Farouk about Charles's past. She explained that growing up as a young child in a war-torn country, seeing dead bodies maimed, disfigured, bleeding, rotting, etc. may not excuse an indifference to death but might go some way towards explaining it. She also told Farouk about Charles's crimes in Paris, including car theft, forgery and armed robbery. To avoid one of the charges, they fled France. Chantal explained that Charles never fitted in and didn't feel French even though he was close to his step-siblings. He was a person of the East. In the morning, Chantal left and neither her nor Charles contacted Farouk again while he was in Paris. In December 1998, Chantal left Paris and Charles. Dundee contacted Chantal as per Charles's request. She wrote to him confirming she was still his wife-to-be and that Charles would get her in January. In 1999, Charles and Chantal were in London, gambling in a casino in Edgware Road. Charles lost everything and called Dundee to ask to lend him money so he could get his car out of the car park and get a ferry back to France. Dundee found out later how and why Charles and Chantal ended up in London gambling. Chantal's family owned some land between France and Switzerland, which her father transferred to her name. Charles had no interest in settling there, so they sold the land for £40,000. They then went to Amsterdam to celebrate. Charles was feeling lucky, so they went to a casino, where he ended up losing half of the money. He decided he would have better luck in England. So that's where they went. Dondi was never paid back for the money he loaned them so they could leave England after their losses. Yeah, we've both just like got our heads in our hands. He's obviously got an addiction problem and he has no regard for whose money he's using and losing to feed this habit. Yeah, he just needs to get his fit. Yeah, and poor Chantel, like she went through all of this before and she's letting it happen again. Yeah, she's not learning her lesson at all. No. Chantel then wrote to John Dee explaining that they were depending on the BBC film to help them financially. However, this wasn't a done deal. Charles was eager for TV productions about him, as long as he wasn't seen as confessing to the murders. And there's a, a quote here from Hawkeye and a Hyena. Charles was, unsurprisingly to me, quite willing to have the murders he had perpetrated shown on screen as truth, as long as he wasn't associated with having confessed to them. His strategy would be to deny admitting to any murders. His legal cooperation would entail agreeing not to sue the film or the documentary for libel in exchange for as much money as he could bargain for. He would tell the story, but when it came on screen or in print, he would say it was the filmmaker's fantasy. Dundee worked on a screenplay and at first gave it to Sarab Irani from Bombay, who was initially interested. Sarab was the prospective producer, but after going back to Bombay with a script, he didn't approve of it. A few months later, however, Farouk got a call from Ismail Merchant, a producer and partner of James Ivory in the Oscar-winning category of film production. However, after having a meeting with Charles, the film was never made. Ismail never formally contracted the script or paid for it. Farouk was then contacted by Shakar Kapoor, who had made the Oscar award-winning Elizabeth. In the synopsis of the script, Farouk had specified that Charles had murdered 52 people, in five countries across Asia. Charles had given him permission to write what he wanted, carte blanche. However, when Charles read the synopsis, he queried the number. The film was then never commissioned or written. In December 99, Charles phoned Farouk about the Indian Airlines flight IC-814 hijacked. 
The Indian Airlines Airbus had departed from Kathmandu with 176 passengers, with Delhi as its intended destination. However, after it took off, five of the passengers were members of the Harkat al-Majahideen, a Pakistani-based Islamic jihadist group, hijacked the plane with weapons and explosives they had smuggled on board. The pilot and crew succumbed and were forced to make a series of stops before finally landing in Kandahar in Afghanistan. At the time, most of Afghanistan, including Kandahar, was under Taliban control. The terrorists threatened to kill all the passengers if their demands to have several notorious and convicted terrorists set free were not met, including Masood Hazar. Charles said Masood was his friend and that he could get him to free the hostages. He asked Farouk to contact someone from the Indian government. Farouk called Ashok Jaitley, who was a friend and a civil servant in Delhi. The Indian government didn't want the situation to end badly, especially since there were recriminations about the lapse of security on the Indian airlines and repercussions at Kathmandu airport, since five terrorists were able to board with their weapons. Ashok agreed to contact Jaswant Singh, the foreign minister, to discuss the possibility of Charles's involvement in negotiations. Ashok called Farouk back a few hours later, after extensive discussions with Jaswant, several members and possibly the head of RAW, the Indian CIA, and military. They ultimately decided against the offer as they didn't want the world's media reporting that a serial killer had been used to help deal with Pakistani terrorists. Jaswant went to Kandahar himself and negotiated with the terrorists, agreeing to release the five prisoners they requested in exchange for the aircraft and passengers. All passengers were released apart from one passenger who had been killed by the hijackers to prove their intent. Masood returned to Pakistan with a hero's welcome and went on to lead one of the most ruthless Pakistani terrorist groups. He remained friends with Charles who visited him in Pakistan. Charles would later claim he was instrumental in getting the hostages released. Of course. Yeah. Whether I believe it or not is another question. Yeah. After 9-11 and the invasion in Afghanistan, listeners are probably wondering, what are we talking about now? How is... We'll get there. Charles told Farouk that he was going to Afghanistan on a humanist mission to survey the state of orphans living in camps as a result of the conflict. Farouk speculated that Charles could be going as an emissary of Masood Azhar, who was leading the Jaishi Mohammed terrorist group. Charles had told Farouk that he had the protection of the fundamentalist groups wherever he travelled. Farouk also knew that Charles had travelled to Afghanistan after meeting Masood at the borders there. One day at 6am, Charles asked Farouk to meet him at a hotel on the M25 in England. Farouk reluctantly agreed and when he met with Charles, he was taken to a van in the car park. They were then joined by two Belgian men and the van was opened to show Farouk that it was full of old antique furniture. Charles told Farouk that they wanted to set up an antiques business. He explained that they needed someone with a British passport and a British bank account to help them set up a shopfront. He offered Farouk £100,000 to be his partner. He then took Farouk to his hotel room and handed him some brochures which showed various types of weapons, from automatic guns to anti-aircraft artillery. Charles explained that the antiques business was just a front and that he was actually selling weapons to groups all over the world. 
The weapons being sold were from dumps once used in the Soviet Union, but now from independent places such as Belarus, where Russia had dumped them. The models were out of date, but still useful to certain groups. Charles justified this by saying, but what's the difference between what Americans did in Vietnam and what our customers are doing for liberation? War is like that, and whether we are selling or buying or whatever, the world will go on as it is. You know that. Farouk explained that even if he was interested in being involved in Charles's illegal business, there was no way he could get a second mortgage, be accused of tax avoidance or be sued by his literary agent for the sudden accumulation of money. Farouk believed that Charles was selling arms to the Taliban and possibly had plans to betray them as well. He decided not to report what he knew to the authorities for a number of reasons, including A, he didn't know who to tell, and B, Charles could have had intention to hand over his terrorist customers and associates to the CIA. Charles never did get an antique shop in London, and Farouk heard nothing more about that plan. There was another occasion where Charles proposed going into the wine trade with Farouk. Again, this never happened and was not mentioned again. He's like a terrorist Del Boy. <laughs> He's got his Robert Reliant outside. Yeah. He's got the same hat. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> He's Rodney. <laughs> I think he wanted Farouk to be his Rodney. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In early 2002, Charles contacted Farouk again, asking about red mercury. Farouk explained that it was something the Russians had claimed to have discovered and fabricated, a supposed unstable product which could be used as a nuclear trigger. Farouk forgot about the conversation until he needed to know where Charles was as Nick, the editor of Storyville, was trying to decide on his story. Chantel told Farouk that he was in Bahrain, at the time, though, Farouk didn't link this to Charles's inquiry about red mercury. Soon after, Tony Blair made the controversial declaration to ally with George Bush's invasion of Iraq, declaring that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. The rest of the EU declined to join the war, while news of civilian casualties caused by the bombings from the UK and the US were published. Blair's publicist Alistair Campbell published a report in September 2002 to justify the UK's involvement in the invasion and it was labelled as the dodgy dossier. After the devastation of the war and the fact that no weapons of mass destruction had been found in Iraq, Farouk remembered his conversation with Charles. He called Charles and asked him why he wanted to know about Red Mercury and why he went to Bahrain. Charles confirmed they were offered a supply of red mercury and sub Arab, quote, men wanted to buy some. Charles then suggested that the men could have been Iraqis and that he had all of the correspondence in code as proof of the deal. Farouk then had to spell out to Charles that if the Iraqis were inquiring about red mercury, then Bush and Blair's reasons for invading Iraq could possibly have been right and that Charles was possibly sitting on one of the biggest news stories in the world. Charles played dumb. Like, how... If what he was doing was true, if he was involved in the arms trade, how could he not realise that he was, you know, sitting on a massive story? Do you think he did know? I don't know how much of this to believe. Yeah... Because if it was true, then surely he would have known 
what a big story it was and therefore thought about would have thought about the money. Well, he does think about the money after, but it's, I don't know. It's Unless he was just playing, like, acting dumb to Farouk to then, like, manipulate Farouk into what he does next, which is trying to get him to s- sell his story. Yeah. Yeah, that, that sounds more like him, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> so Farouk asked Charles to come over to London right away and to bring his emails and recordings with him. Farouk then contacted Peter Auburn, who was a journalist at The Spectator, which was a right-wing magazine who had an aversion to Tony Blair, but were quite likely in favour of the war. Peter said that Charles's story sounded like a huge scoop. And that's when he contacted Boris Johnson, who at the time was an editor for The Spectator. Good up, Bojo. The following morning, Charles and Farouk went to Auburn's house at 7.30am and Boris arrived there on his bicycle. On his Boris bike. I don't know if he actually did turn up on a Boris bike. He turned up on a bike. Anyway, (laughs) Charles said he had proof of his story in the form of emails and recordings, but didn't present them. After listening to the story, Boris said that it was too big of a story for the spectator and that he could call Mike. We don't know the surname, but he could call Mike at the Daily Telegraph, which is an even bigger right-wing broadsheet newspaper. Farouk left the meeting and later got a call from Mike who informed him that Charles was asking for a few hundred thousand pounds to show that he had proof of the story before giving any further details. Mike had to clarify that it was against the law for them to pay for news stories as if they follow the law all the time. Anyway. Farouk then explained to Mike that he had nothing to do with the story. He introduced Charles to Boris and that was that. He didn't know what evidence Charles had, but confirmed to Mike that Charles had inquired about Red Mercury before the war, and he knew that Charles was involved in the arms procurement business, and that Charles went to Bahrain to do business. He then suggested that Charles could be willing to bargain. Charles then called Farouk a few hours later to say that Mike offered £15,000 for the story, which was peanuts to Charles, so he was going to find someone else to sell the story to. So Farouk suggested getting in touch with The Guardian or The Times, but Charles said he couldn't wait and that he needed to get back to Paris for a flight the next day. He asked Farouk to meet him urgently. They met in the Shakespeare in the Victoria Station. Was that the Weatherspoons we used to go to? Uh, it rings a bell with me, and I thought the same when I read this. Yeah, and I just remember we saw Des Lennis there once. Yeah. And there was that homeless guy with the ginger, ginger cat. cat. Yeah. Yeah. I miss Witherspoons. I know, I mean, they're, the the owner is like a pro-Brexit arsehole, but yeah. I love I love Witherspoons. They did good jacket potatoes. And- yeah, they... they um, They had like a good vegan menu before I left the UK. Yeah, I do love Weatherspoons. Yeah, I love a good old pub. It's too expensive in Sweden to go pub visiting. They don't really have pubs here. It's not the same. It's not like a British or Irish pub. No. Anyway, so Charles told Farouk that he was going to Kathmandu via Pakistan. Farouk was aware that Charles was reported to have killed Connie Jo Bronzich and her boyfriend Laurent Carrière in the late 70s there. He asked Charles, instead of asking him directly, but didn't you murder these people there, he just asked Charles, isn't it unsafe for you? 
To which Charles responded, I am as safe as I want to be. Farouk questions the urgency, especially since Charles had a huge story which could make him reasonable money. Charles said he could deal with that when he got to the US, but didn't confirm if he actually had plans to go there. He then went on to explain that Masood was going to connect Charles with the Taliban and that they would be meeting in Kathmandu as it was neutral territory. The Taliban wanted to buy weapons like the ones Charles was involved in selling, but they didn't have the money. They were getting money from smuggling and selling heroin in Pakistan and India, but this wasn't enough. Charles's Chinese triad friends from Paris. Now, this is the first time he mentions the drug ring in this book. Yes, we did say in the previous episode that there was no mention of this in the book. Yeah, so correction. We were wrong. We apologise. He does mention it, but he doesn't connect it to the murders in Thailand and Kathmandu. But so he mentions the Chinese triad at this point, and he says that they were going to fly from Paris and join the meeting in Kathmandu with the Taliban. And the idea was that the Taliban would work with the triad to sell their heroin, which would earn them enough money to buy weapons from Charles. When Farouk asked Charles why he was telling him all of this, Charles replied, because you think I am a serial killer and arms dealer and am on the side of the people like the Taliban who want to convert everyone to be Muslim. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, Charles. Yeah, Um, shut up, Charles. (laughs) He then went on to explain that he was planning to double-cross the triad and the Taliban by giving all of the information to the CIA so they would have information on the triad drug network in America and the Taliban. He had contacted them through John Ranella, who he had met previously through Farouk, and made a deal. Afterwards, he would then go and live in the US and start a new life. So in 2003, Charles decided to fly to Nepal where the arrest warrants for the murder of Connie Joe Bronzich and Laurent Carrier were still active. Apparently, a journalist recognised Charles and alerted the police and who then arrested him at, you guessed it, a casino. <laughs> he later said that he went to Nepal to research handicrafts and that he was there to do get your story straight he was there to do work for the Chinese government anyway but according to French news website lemonde.fr Charles had gone to Nepal as an assistant producer for a Parisian company as part of a documentary for television he was arrested while playing barakat in a casino the police accused him of having entered Nepal under a false identity but then the reason for his detention changed to murder According to the Hawk and Hyena, there were reports that the journalist who recognised him had been on Charles's tail 28 years earlier. Farouk, in his book, he speculates the possible reasons as to why Charles was arrested instead of move, going on to live his new life in the US. One of his theories was that Rosanne was unhappy with Chantal coming back into Charles's life and his new plans to start again with her in the US. She may have informed the triad of his plans to double-cross them. The triad possibly could have failed to meet Charles in Nepal, leaving him high and dry with the Taliban. He also suggested that it was possible the CIA let the Nepalese authorities know that Charles was in the country 
and instructed them to arrest him for his past crimes. Regardless of what happened, he was sentenced to life in prison for Connie's murder. The files for Laurent's case were mislaid. They weren't found until 2008, but Charles did receive a further 20 years in 2014 for his murder. In 2004, Charles called Farouk from prison and asked him to check if there were any companies in India which made hot air balloons. <laughs> you can tell where this is going, can't you? Yeah. Farouk did ask one of his researchers to look into hot air balloons out of curiosity, but he knew it would be an impossible escape plan for Charles and he wasn't going to help him escape. When Charles got the message, he didn't ask again about hot air balloons. In 2008, Dondi's fiction about a serial murderer called The Bikini Murders was published. His main character drew comparisons to Charles. In a TV interview, Charles and his French lady lawyer were brought in remotely to confront Farouk. At the time, Charles threatened to sue Farouk, but he had no grounds to. Charles did call Farouk a few years later to say he read his book carefully. He also mentioned that his lawyers were appealing to the United Nations as his arrest was a miscarriage of justice. Charles received a response from the UN, convinced they had acknowledged his case and he would soon be free. However, the email simply said, Thank you for your letter and submission. We acknowledge receipt of it. Ha <laughs> ha! I mean, this is like a head-scratchy moment for Farouk because it's like, as someone so like clever and manipulative, how can you not understand what a simple acknowledgement email means? <laughs> oh, dear. In October 2008, Charles married his lawyer's daughter, Nahita Biswas, who recently appeared on an Indian reality TV programme and nearly suffered a nervous breakdown. She was just 22 years old. Yeah, it's disgusting, isn't it? Yeah. How, how, much, how much was he? <laughs> how old was he? Old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In his 70s? 60s, 70s? Something like that. Uh, I'm not sure. According to the Hawk and Hyena, Chantelle kept in contact with Charles, but it was threatened by Nahita never to darken its iron bars or close doors again. After that, all correspondence stopped. He later said about Chantal, I didn't really love her, I can only love intelligent women. What a prick. Yep, absolute arsehole. But he says this about every relationship he's been in. He uses every woman that he's with. Yeah. He just uses and abuses them, simple as. In 2019, Julie Clark met Herman Knipperberg in New Zealand. According to Herman, solving the case was one of his most important achievements. His time travelling as a young student made him sympathise with the victims and their families. He became so absorbed by the case to a point where his career and marriage were at risk. Herman said about of the people Charles had at Canet House, like the travellers and people staying there, um, he believed that they were like a surrogate family for Charles and that Maria Leclerc played the role of mother. About his dealings with the Chinese drug cartel and being a hitman, Herman didn't believe it. Charles was too flamboyant compared to the solitary and withdrawn individuals 
who usually conduct this sort of work. About his family background, Herman said that Charles blamed his father for taking the chance of an opulent lifestyle away from him, and he despised his stepfather for his mental health and not being able to stand up to Charles's mother. His hatred of the French legal system and the racism he experienced at school extended into the hatred for Europeans. And there's a, a quote from the Clark and Neville book. Herman says, My theory is that Sabraj had invited the victims to join him, become part of the family, either as members in residence or as business partners, to smuggle gems or whatever else he was up to. By now he had no doubt he could convince anyone to do anything, as he had Yannick, an ex-policeman, acting as his secretary. In 2022, Charles was released from prison due to serving 75% of his life sentence and his health was deteriorating. He went back to France. In February 2023, Moi Le Sapin, did I say that right? Moi Le Sapin, an autobiography was published in which Charles delivers his truth, or rather his truths, for the first time in this intimate and personal account written in detention. Memoirs collected clandestinely by Jean-Charles Deneux, uh, a journalist and director. He also considers the Serpent TV show to be 80% false. Charles had his first television interview since release on French TV. He admitted to drugging his victims, stealing from them and using their passports, but denied being a murderer. Of Stephanie Paris, he said the Thai police declared her death accidental. Of Luke Solomon, he accused him of having an addiction to drugs. After being released in 97, he said his life was too normal. He ended the interview asserting that he was not a serial killer and that he would prove it. And that is the end of that. That was a long one. Yeah, that was a really long episode. I hope he doesn't do anything after this because that's just going to add to the longness. He's got to be too old. Yeah, but I reckon he's got something up his sleeve. I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that him and Nahita aren't even together anymore. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, I'm not sure, but like, I mean, that famous photo of him on the airplane flying back from with the <laughs> with the frightened lady in the mask. Yeah. Um, you know, he's he's just flying back on his own. But yeah, I remember that that um TV interview. I remember that appearing on French TV and I distinctly remember I think I messaged you about it as yeah. well saying Charles Sabraj is on TV. I was like I was doing the laundry while watching it and after all these years and what doesn't help is he got away with the crimes. He was never sentenced. So he's he's got the power to say I never did anything because he was never charged because you know the statute of limitations in Thailand and the lack of evidence for some of the other ones. Yeah. What a crazy life and how frustrating for any relatives of the victims to know that he's gotten away with it. Yeah, and frustrating for Herman Knippenberg as well, who put all in that effort into finding out who he really was. Yeah, I mean, his determination. Yeah, I think I would be really angry if I was him. Yeah, it's very, very frustrating because, well, him, Nadine, 
Remy, like all all of those individuals that worked together to try and capture Charles. And they weren't even police. No, that's the that's the amazing thing. They weren't police. They weren't they shouldn't have been involved in this. But they had to because of the victims and how frustrating that they couldn't get justice for all of those victims. Mm. I've just read your note on the summary page. Yeah. Fuck me, that was a long one. Yes. Oh, my God. I'm glad we've got to the end of this. Yeah, me too. And it's onwards and upwards to more stories, more more crimes. Yeah. So what are we doing next? Well, for our next episode, which is episode two, we're going to focus on Stockholm Syndrome, which is yeah. a psychological phenomenon and it came about because of a bank robbery that happened in Stockholm. So we're researching that now, and it's really, really yeah. interesting. It's it's another case that's happened in the 70s. Yes. Um, so there's many similarities. There are. There. I was reading the book, and I was, I was going to message you about that. I was like, well, sounds a bit like yeah, Charles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we're looking forward to doing that one. And hopefully it won't be as long and as chaotic. It definitely won't have Boris Johnson involved. No. That's for sure. No. Or the Taliban. Yes, yeah. No red mercury. But yeah, I don't know how many... Is, only gonna, is it only going to be one part? I hope so. We, we are, like, are going to try and just stick to... If we have to do a case over multiple parts, we are going to try our hardest to never go over three parts i think we bit off more than we could chew when we decided to choose charles sabrage as our first i know podcast episode do forgive us people this is our first podcast our first case and we chose this little fucker (laughs) yeah but we we hope you've enjoyed it anyway yeah, if you if you did listen to this, thank you for sticking <laughs> sticking it out. And just so that you know, there's information that we've added to the website. There's a timeline so you can keep track. There's yes. there's a, a list of names because they're confusing. Yes. And what else do we have now, Zia? The transcript. The transcript. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, any of the names that we've mispronounced, which I'm sure is a lot of them, you will you can see the actual spelling. And if you actually know French, let us know. Yeah. <laughs> we've mispronounced it. Hopefully, as the episodes go on, we'll... I mean, the next one, I'm going to be completely useless. I don't know any Swedish. So you're going to have to school me on the Swedish pronunciations. Yeah, that's going to be fun. Yeah, that's more of a headache than French, for goodness sake. We look forward to it. Yeah. And we hope you join us for the next case. Yeah, please follow us and download wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the show. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find more information about the show on our website at feloniouspod.com or on our Instagram at feloniouspod. Links to our show notes can be found in the episode description as well as through our website and social media. You can visit our Contact Us page and tell us what you think about the show and if there are any cases you would like us to cover. We hope you join us for the next episode. Goodbye!
Bye.